Okay, you go off. So the first fun fact is the two words most associated with Revelation is rapture and antichrist, but these do not appear in the book of Revelation at all. Mind blown? Promise you? Just to kind of recheck that the fact checkers were real, I just quickly Google, like searched it, I promise you. In fact, the word rapture only appears in one of the Gospels, and it's about that they were in awe of Jesus, not a rapture. Right, next one. So for the average pastor, we've seen this, we've encountered this, most common response is not to preach in, the gospel, in, in Revelation at all. In fact, there are some people who believe that the book doesn't belong in the Bible. A little scary. Okay, Carly, you're next. Um, Revelation almost didn't make it into the Bible canon, even though the early church generally identified it as scripture and quoted it in their work. So I, I explained to Carly the Bible canon. So do you most understand? That's kind of where they were having issues back in the day of like Gospel of Thomas were coming in and there were some strange Gospels coming into sort of the church, so they decided, okay, let's put it together, some criteria, what's going to make, what is scripture and what isn't, and that's how this happened, and Revelation made it in, yeah? but skin of its teeth, yeah, all right, Carly, you can do this one, uh, I'll do this one, okay. <laughs> oh, sorry, I messed up your order, <laughs> so Michael Gordon, Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, he lists, <laughs> I've just taken three, but he's lists quite a few well-known people who have made really bad comments about the book of Revelation. So Martin Luther, I think we all have an idea of who he is, 16th century theologian. He said Christ is neither taught or known in it. You've got Friedrich Nietzsche, the German guy. He was a German philosopher. And he stated it was a rabid outburst of vindictiveness <laughs> in all recorded history. Oh, And then George Bernard Shaw, who was a playwright, he believed it was a curious record of visions of a drug addict. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, who feels like that sometimes? You're reading like Revelation, like this guy was high. <laughs> Promise you he wasn't. All right, go for it. So according to Wikipedia, some of the earliest past predictions were by Christian theologians, Hippolytus of Rome, Arrhenius, and Augustine, who all believed that Jesus would return in the year 500. And there have been well over 300 different dates predicted, and not one of them has come true. N literally not one. So I think there's something in these predicted dates that we actually should simply ignore. So if not one. Kind of says a lot, right? Okay, so this is, this is a little bit of old research, and I do think it's changed, but according to a Pew Research survey done in America, and I don't know when they mean 58% of Americans, whether it's church-going Americans or all of Americans, believe that Jesus will return by the, the year 2050. I think it'll probably come down now because most people in America don't believe in God. So why would they believe that Jesus would come back, right? All right, Carly. So I'm talking to you, but it's my turn. Yeah. 
That's why you, she's looking at me as if I'm, what are you doing to me? I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah. I was like, oops, I didn't prep for this part. <laughs> oh, fun times. Keep you on your toes. All right, so the structure of Revelation, as Sherry had kind of done for us, an incredible preacher. If you want to unpack more and decipher what this diagram means, then go, go back and listen to it. We've got a, a YouTube channel with a playlist that we're adding to every week. So if you, it's important that we understand the structure of how Revelation is put out. Then, just a quick summary. So this is by a guy called Martin somebody, but I thought it was incredibly amazing how he summarized this. So it's an apocalypse, as an apocalypse, which means unveiling, if you remember, it reveals what must soon take place. As a prophecy, it testifies to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. And then, as a letter, it addresses to these seven churches in the Roman, Roman province of Asia. So that's kind of your little summary. I said to Kali, was like, well, that's quick and easy. Why do we have to go through the whole book? Anyway, it can be described as a political cartoon. Everything is slightly exaggerated. So, or elements of things are slightly exaggerated. The imagery is designed to draw us in. It's designed to ignite your imagination, which is pretty cool. Um, it's also designed to open doors into the heavenly realm, which we're going to get into later. It gives us a better... It's like, you guys look around and this is your true reality. Actually, heaven's reality is better and truer. It's like tougherer. This is truer. And it affects how we live our daily lives, Right? Um, we can have a misconception when reading Revelation. So some of the lenses that we have on, like if you're dispensationalists or you believe in the rapture and those kind of things, will affect how you, you read the book and kind of what you see through those lenses, those filters. And then everyone, you want to do this one because you actually brought this one up. So I was watching a video and this kind of highlighted it, but... Everyone kind of speaks about the book as being like, this is how the world's going to end and stuff. But then, like, even in chapter one, like, it just describes how Jesus is unveiled to us. And it's a pretty cool, yeah, vision of that. So, And just to remember, it's not a literal book. It's an allegory or an allegory. Oh, I'm going to pronounce words so bad today, so it's going to be fun. You guys are going to laugh at me. And then it's an audio, video, visual presentation, what we call like an AV presentation today. Um, so it's a literary art form. It's, it's incredible. So Carly, do you want to kind of, well, uh, first we had Gary introduced and Andre, by the way, you did an incredible job. Well done from last week. So we did Team Lamb, Team Dragon. All right. So and Gary and Andre introduced all these different characters. Jesus, the Lamb, Mary, angels, the dissident disciples, and then these very mysterious creatures, elders, 24 elders around the throne, and lots more. There's, there's a lot there. Team Dragon, are they worth men mentioning? So I'm reminded of when, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you read the Bible, it gets a little old, like stale, and one of my favorite uh, female theologians, her name is Carmen Imes, 
And she relates the this, this story of how sometimes when we read the Bible, it's like the children of Narnia. Who knows the Chronicles of Red or watched the Chronicles of Narnia? All right, so it, it was written by C.S. Lewis. Um, and the inspiration for the story came from a beautiful old handcrafted cabinet that his grandfather had gifted him and his brother. And this became the inspiration for this, this amazing tale, wonderful tales of strange lands and all that. So the Chronicles of Narnia became this passport to another world. And the characters, so it was a whole bunch of children that were sent, I think it was during the First War, they were sent, they lived in London and they were sent to a family home out in the country for their protection. And they discover this, in this big house, country house, in, in, they discover this cupboard. And climbing into the cupboard, they discover beyond the cupboard is this other world. What was interesting is in the story, sometimes they entered into this world of Narnia, but other times they just found coats and mothballs and dust. And, and what we do sometimes, isn't the Bible a bit like that? where you can read it and you're like, nah, what's going on? You don't get it. Sometimes the book of Revelation is a bit like that. You read it and you actually feel a little confused and stuck. And sometimes we read it and we enter into another world and we become, what's amazing about the kids in the story of Narnia is they actually become the main players in the this wonderful land, they get to, right at the end, I think there's a few books, where they get to become kings and queens of Narnia themselves. Isn't that like us? If we just keep climbing into the closet, and sometimes we find a stale like mothballs, and it's a bit old and dusty, but other times when you climb into the book of, like, Revelation, you discover a whole new world, and guess what? You're part of the plan. You're part of the plan. You're part of the story, and you're going to be kings and queens in God's tale. That's incredible. Is there anything that you wanted to add with that? Okay. All right. Okay, so we're going to link it anyway because you're next. <laughs> so you've got some questions. What is your experience? Like, how have you found this journey because I know it has been a few weeks where you've, well, more than a few weeks, sort of December, that you started to really dig into the book of Revelation. Um, you've also had, like, other input from other authors, from us, about what this book means. How's, what has your experience been, and how has it kind of helped you in this journey? Okay, so my experience has been quite fun, actually. <laughs> I really enjoyed, like, digging into this book. Um, I mean, I've read a few things that Louise has sent me. I've listened to podcasts. I've been watching lots of videos. And then, obviously, Louise teaching me a lot of this stuff has helped quite a lot. Um, but the first time that we went into this book was I was with Anjo and Seb. And we sat outside together with one of Dale's books that he gave us. And we kind of unpacked some questions that the book guided us. And I think the main thing that we got was, like, the proper definition of apocalypse. 
Um, so that was like two months ago, and then now we're still on <laughs> chapter one. Um, and yeah, I've got like a whole new understanding of just chapter one. And I think that that kind of sums up the book completely. There's always a new perspective. There's always a new way of reading it. There's always a new understanding of God as you keep reading it, um, which I think is pretty cool. There's always something to learn. And I guess that links back to the Narnia um, example, like you're kind of going into this cupboard and seeing all of these things the whole time. Sometimes, I mean, you get stuck and <laughs> that's kind of when you're like, what the heck is happening? Um, but then, yeah, other times you just keep learning new things. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's been really cool. I think that the book is written really cleverly. Like, I've really enjoyed listening to Louise teaching me about the history and how John really did, like, write it. Um, like I keep just envisioning John sitting there with all of these visions, all of his knowledge of the Old Testament and putting it together into this book. And I think that that helped me kind of really, like it became real for me after like envisioning John in this experience. Um, and yeah, I think Louise will explain more about how the book is written and how awesome God is. But I really do just encourage you to like dive into this with us because I think that if you open your heart up to it and engage in it, there's definitely something that you'll take away from today. So yeah. So one of the things that we're going to deal with today is the question, why, if, I don't know if you've noticed but Richard Balcom, he's a theologian, kind of brought this up. Is that, do you realize that the name Yahweh, or God, actually isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation? Why has John not mentioned him? It's quite an interesting thing, because you would think, we were discussing this yesterday, that God would be pretty central. I mean, we know Jesus is central, but what happened to to God? What happened to Yahweh? So, great question. Thanks, guys. You're very clever. But actually, in fact, he's pretty central. He's just more hidden. He is the main character, apart from Jesus. He's just mysterious, although his name is never mentioned, as I said. His role appears to be hidden. He's literally the creator of the story. So think of Shakespeare. You wouldn't have Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or all the other strange, I think my kids are like, they're in Hamlet season with school. And I mean, Shakespeare's season with school and they're like, ugh, everyone hated Shakespeare, but everyone knows Shakespeare. So you wouldn't have English set work if, <laughs> if it wasn't for Shakespeare. God plays a similar role. If I want to bring in an example now to today, let's talk about the Marvel movies or the Marvel stories. You've got the guy, Stan Lee, and he has these cameo appearances in the movie. His, his character actually has nothing to do with the story, but you all know that he's the creator of these stories, right? God's role is very similar like that in the book of Revelation. So what we've got to look at, and this is where we've got to dig a little deeper, is why John has chosen to do it like this. Why has he chosen to, in fact, God only speaks twice in the book of Revelation directly. So he's introduced by John, which we'll get into, and then he speaks twice, one in the beginning and one at the end. Kind of sounds like a bookend 
a little bit of a literary structure that we got going here. So John's introduction, so it says in verse 4, from John to the seven churches who are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from. So that means all this stuff is from he who was, who he who, who is, who, and who was, and who's still to come. No name, but that's this person, figure, this being. And then from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So he doesn't use the name Yahweh. He doesn't, he just says he who is. And in fact, it's, it irks a lot of the, let's say the, the language or the sort of the scholars who are unpacking the Greek. It irks them because grammatically it's, it's incorrect the way he's done it. Um, you've got Lee who, and some people who come to me and like, the spelling or the grammar, you know, and they glitch. In many ways, John's been deliberate here. He's purposefully almost glitching people by putting in incorrect Greek grammar because he wants you to notice something. So it's a mistake, but it's deliberate on his part. And in many ways, what they believe, the reason why he's done this, he wants to leave God's name untouched when you translate it from the Hebrew, directly from the Hebrew. So this is an illusion, not illusion, allusion, to Exodus 3.14. Moses in the burning bush, and God, Moses is like, I don't know, who am I going to say is sending me? And God goes, I am that I am. So that little phrase is directly translated into Greek, and it makes it awkward in the Greek. So it's now he who is, which means what? Okay. So he's linking back, a hyperlink. So people are now having this whole thing of who God is. Not only that, he's linking back to Exodus and what happened with Egypt. So there's a little, there's some digs here. Because in the and, to add on top of things, He's got this and who was and who's still to come. That phrase is, a, is from Greek philosophy. So he's now taken something from the Old Testament. Now he's mixing in a blender of like Greek philosophy and he's willed it together and going, here guys, we've got a new smoothie on our hands. <laughs> it's a mess. Literally, it's a mess. Grammar, like grammar-wise, it's a mess. And he does it on purpose. I said to Carly, it's like he's pictured... He's standing there and he's got all these visions running around in his head of what's happened and who he's encountered and Jesus and all these things that have happened, these visions that occurred. And then he's going, and remember, hindsight, 2020 vision, he's on this side of Jesus. So he's mixing this into this whole thing. And he's going, wow, Old Testament. So he started to go through. And then he's like, oh my gosh, there, that means that. And oh, so he's having revelation upon revelation, unveiling upon unveiling of what Old Testament stuff, sources, adding Christian sources and Greek sources. And then he's mixing it all together and goes, guys, this is what this means. That's what's happening. He's also challenging the gods of the day, culture of the day. So the major god was Zeus, 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 the Greek god. He was the main guy. He was referred to like there was a phrase. So it's, you think your gods are supreme? Ha, I know. <laughs> Have you met mine? <laughs> can, can I? Yeah. 
Can I add something? You can. So when Louise was explaining that slide to me, I kind of asked her like if it links with this and I related it to me like writing an essay in varsity. Like when you write that essay, you have to take sources from like this journal, that journal, that journal and put it into like one topic. So that's almost like what he did. He took all of the visions he had with all of like this source from the Old Testament and then he kind of like mushed it all together. So that's just the yeah, example that I thought of. A brilliant example, because that's what we do. We were required to write essays or dissertations or stuff and then we mix in this and then come up with something not new, but something to think of in a different way, another lens, right? Okay, so, right. We get the, come to God's first self-declaration. One of two. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is and who was and is still to come. Now remember, he's mushed the one who is, the one who's still to come. He's He's kind of mixing that in. But the I am the Alpha and the Omega is a very interesting comment that he's, he's made. It's a divine self-declaration. And it's the most clear and direct statement you hear from God. This is the first one, and this, he does it at the end of Revelation and Revelation 21. So this is now Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is supreme. He is, he is creator of all. It's the source of life, existence, comes from him. Not any of these other gods that, are, that is, the culture is worshipping. So God precedes all things. And he will bring everything to a close. And that's what John is saying in this. I'm the beginning and the end. He is the goal, the origin of history as opposed to all these other gods. The emperors, remember they believed that the emperors were kind of a god themselves or maybe the emperors thought that and just kind of wanted everyone to worship them. It was a dig at the Roman state as well. So all of these were digs, like up your nose, up your kilt kind of thing. Up your kilt. There were theology claims within this thing. So from John, again, the theology here, as you can see, it's not only Father God, it's not only Yahweh, it's Jesus, and then Holy Spirit. It's not seven spirits, it's Holy Spirit who is com the complete spirit. Remember what seven means? So the claim is the true source is the triune God. And then it's, again, it's just challenging all the claims that Rome said about itself, their gods, etc. And then Richard Buckham notes that revelation is highly theocentric. What does that mean, Louise? <laughs> did you have to Google it? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. <laughs> so we, we were talking about, like, they use some of these words and we're like, what? <laughs> theocentric, that's a really good question. <laughs> what does that mean? So, like we said, revelation takes all these principal features about who God is and then the understanding of who he is, and we reorders it into a New Testament way of thinking. So now everything is determined or like pushed through the lens of Jesus, the Lamb, the King of Kings. Okay, so everything, that's how they're doing it. They're viewing it. It's called hindsight. You know, it's 2020 vision now. 
So theocentric is the belief that God is a central aspect to our existence. And um, it's a very Hebraic worldview in terms of Yahweh, but the world, the culture in those days was very theocentric in what I mean is that they ordered, their, their whole lives revolved around the gods that they worshipped. The way their cities were set up, there were temples in the middle of the city, that kind of thing. So it was, it was pretty like a normal thing, a way of life, depending on who the God you served, right? So everything flows from Yahweh. That's what John is saying. It flows through him and to him. And then the belief is like us humans. We are finite. We are limited. But we are finding, we will find our most satisfaction when we focus on the infinite, unlimited God, Yahweh. So that's the theocentric. Thanks. You're welcome. So to make it like a little bit simpler, we put God at the center of our lives. Okay. So naturally, this is where we get our living, our existence, our purpose, our identity from when we do that. We reorder Jesus and God into the center of our lives. So do you want to help me with the anthropocentric life? Uh, however you pronounce that. So that puts man at the center. It kind of reminds us a little bit about social media, taking selfies narcissism. And then existentialism, I got that, puts existence at the center, where it, just living is meaningful enough. It's like hippie life 101, right? So when we live theocentric lives, we put God in the center, we get our meaning, our motivation for living is God. And it gives us, like I said, our identity and purpose. But what it does is our focus now becomes on heavenly realm, not on the earthly realm. What is the unseen reality is actually our true reality, not what the circumstances that we're living in. So that helps. All right, so we're talking a little bit more technical and we're going into how he structured this book. So remember, Sherry's structure. So that's an overall structure. Now we've got a little bit of a structure within a structure. It's kind of like Ezekiel 1, where you've got wheels within wheels and eyes within eyes. Well, here we go. So the bookend, the total bookend of Revelation is God's statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. But what's interesting is now he links it in and he pulls in Jesus. A couple of verses down in verse 17, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Okay, so that's one bookend. Revelation 21, God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Just to make it like pretty clear, if you're not sure about that. Now, Revelation 22, Jesus goes, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's now linking Jesus with God and God with Jesus. So why is he doing that? He's... Jesus is mirrored in God, and God is mirrored in Jesus. It means that not only is God first in creation, he will have the last say in creation, but Jesus is first in creation, he will have the last say in creation. The inclusion of Jesus in this means that he puts Jesus with the divine, who is God. And now Jesus is a source of salvation, which comes from God. 
and comes from Jesus. So he's linking it. He's, it's like you can't have one without the other. And of course, they have seven, within Revelation, there are seven self-declarations by God and Christ. If you count them all together, what do we have with the number seven? It's complete. It's perfect. There's nothing else you can add to it or take away. And there's hyperlinks back to Isaiah 41, 44, 48, and so on and so forth. Remember, it's like he stood and he looked at his bookshelf with all the Old Testament stuff and all the sources and everything. He's like, oh, I'll take that one. And oh, that one reminds me of that one. And oh, oh, let's pick that. And then he just throws them all in. So he's like a little bit of this and oh, we'll take that bit. And Michael Heiser calls it a blender. It's just a huge, big, and he's not even alluding, he's not even quoting them properly. He's just hinting and pulling through. So all of this must be coming through his mind all at the same time. And he's going, oh my gosh, look how amazing this is. So he gives God this divine title, but he gives Jesus this divine title. And Gary's laughing at me. But what's interesting is that John's use of this is actually pretty unique at the time. No one else was doing this. Yes, some of, of course, all the, Old Test, the New Testament authors were linking and adding stuff, but Revelation is pretty unique in terms of how much he's linked this and how unique it is. He's pretty creative, hey? Like his creativity is mind-blowing. He's a genius, I think. And he's now, what he does is he demonstrates his highly, highly reflective consciousness of Yahweh in doing like this. So, the one who is. Now we're going to go just button down a little bit more. So the one who is. Now you've noticed I've blurred out the figure of God on the throne. And that's because that's what Revelation literally does. So this is, this is an image created by AI. See, we can use technology of today for God's purposes. So I think this is pretty cool. All right. So... How many times do they say the one who is and who was and who is to come? In total, five times. What's interesting, three times. They use three tenses, two times two tenses. So there's patterns. Again, for those who are grammar students, you'll be interested to know, but that's kind of how it happens. Of course, the pattern is pointing to something. It's not just there because it looks good. So... If you take Yahweh in Hebrew and you directly transliterate it into Hebrew letters, I mean Greek letters, you get iota, alpha, and omega. Interesting. So this gives you your three tenses, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And then he changes it somewhat because the one who is to come isn't quite exactly what they're doing. But you can see, linking back to is um, Exodus th 3 again. It's all designed that everything is linked back to the past. What is the past? What is the present? And what is the future is God? That is who we all link to, right? So our hope is, is there. So the one who sits on the throne is another phrase that they use. The throne is a very important symbol. Again, very important. It again occurs seven times. So what do we know about seven? Complete, perfect, right. Um, it's a central. F so you know that when something happens seven times, it's very important. So this happens seven times, it's pretty important, right? 
What's interesting about all the heaven scenes, scenes when you, from even the Old Testament, the link is, the important part is, God's rule is totally and fully accepted in heaven. We have the problem, and this is the kingdom kind of theology coming in where it's the ready but not yet kind of situation. So the not yet is our true reality on earth still means that we still need to accept the full and complete reign of God. So this is a link actually to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's talking about the rule and the reign of God. Right. So the last little bit I said was the throne of heaven is quite important. We're going to get to a point, I promise you. The throne room. So these are very traditional Old Testament images. It describes a visible manifestation of God. So every time there's God is kind of around on earth, you see it in Mount Sinai, you see it in Ezekiel, some of the the throne room things, you've got thunder and lightning and very, very frightening. No, it's not frightening. There's smoke, there's clouds, there's earthquakes, there's rumblings. That's all designed to make you think God's present. Okay. John, again, is drawing from Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1. Go and read Ezekiel 1. Now with some of this in your head, and you may, not, you may actually understand it a little bit better. But what, what we want to bring you to is the existence. This is about worship. These creatures, I think there are four creatures around the throne. Their full existence is about worshiping God. And if you read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 and towards the end, it talks about that holy, holy, holy. And then you've got these circles where you've got the 24 elders. And I actually feel a little bit sorry for them because every time the angel, the creatures, the seraphim and the cherubim are going, holy, 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 which is repeated constantly because they're in constant worship, constant revelation of this magnificent of God. The 24 elders, they have thrones and they have crowns. They take off their crown, get off their throne, and they end up worshiping God. Maybe they get back up because it's authority that's given to them for God. And then the angels go, holy, holy, holy. Worth, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're like, oh, my gosh, another. Okay, take off your crown, get off your throne, and they bow and worship to God. And that is continuous. So their existence is fulfilled and satisfied in worship of God. And then it leads to all the other creatures within the cosmos, including us as mere humans. It does oppose in the day, the culture of the day, where the Greek philosophy thought that humans are the central entity on planet Earth. Guess what? We're not. And this displaces that idea quite strongly. So why are these scenes of worship? What is it designed to do? for us as humans. It's designed to draw us in, for us to be reminded that the true knowledge of God cannot be separated with worship of Him. 
It's the expression of all for our existence, but for his unending, like pulsating circles of his holiness just extending out all the time. And we are utterly dependent on him for our existence of life. John's point is to evoke a response in us as the reader. It's not to predict a sequence of events. You see, the power of responsive worship is designed to, it's, it needs to be invoked and awakened in all of us. As we read this book and we read about God, it should awaken in all of us some kind of worship to who he is. Worship is the, at the heart of our true reality. Worship of God. All created beings, spiritual, physical, exist ultimately to glorify him, to make him famous. And Michael Gorman says that John's peak into heaven, I love this, is that the throne room of God is a beehive of spiritual activity. And we peek into heaven and we get a glimmer of the vision of worship of God that becomes a call to worship him. You see, because remember, as we're the main characters like the Narnia characters, we are, we are allowed to not only just participate in the story, we are his story. And an entry point into getting into, into becoming a major character in the story of God is through worship. That is our key. That's our open door. If you read in heaven, it talks about an open door. So Daryl Johnson, this is not a direct quote. It was something that he said. So John knows who is worthy. The creator and the lamb who sits at the center is worthy. It's the keynote of Christian worship. Not woe is me. Worthy are you, God. So whenever we enter into a time of worship, and this is my challenge to me, but to us as a community is, we are entering into a service that is already in progress. It's not about when the musos start to play. It's already happening. We just get the privilege of coming in to enter in and to participate with heaven in worshiping him. It's already in progress. It's always in progress. And we are invited, not as a key player. So the question to ask after worship is not, what did I get out of it? Guess what? I'm not the issue. You're not the issue. The musos, however skilled they are, they're not the issue. See, when we have that mental attitude of what do I get out of worship, <laughs> we're participating with Team Babylon. The narcissism that's ruling our culture is that we think we're the center of the world. The question to ask is, did I enter in? Did I join with heaven and worshiping the true one? And did my heart want to fall down before the lamb who has overcome? So I'm going to ask the worship team now to help us participate and joining in in the worship of heaven.
where you just center yourselves, not on yourself, but we think of Jesus and Yahweh, the creator of all. And picture, ask him to give you a picture of what this, this glimpse into this spiritual realm. And guess what? So you, we can participate with every other spiritual created beings and we can worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.